Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Today, we're broadcasting from the Pan-African Parliament in Midrand, South Africa, and we're speaking to Dr. Jane Marie Ongolo, who is originally from Kenya, but her portfolio is with the African Union Commission. She heads a division on social welfare, vulnerable groups, drug control, and crime prevention. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ongolo. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be in the show. It's a pleasure having you here, and I think that it's always wonderful when we're in this environment to have this mix of of ladies from across the continent. To start with, could you tell us more about the work that you're doing as as head of division in this incredibly diverse portfolio that really deals with vulnerable groupings? I'll link this with my background. I consider myself um, a social development specialist and uh, have worked in diverse areas on social development from children's rights, human rights, governance, um, social protection, um, drugs, crime, name it. So currently heading the Division of Social Welfare of Vulnerable Groups and Drug Control and Crime Prevention at the African Union Commission, my main role is to pursue social development policies related to inclusion, especially of the most vulnerable populations. And amongst the groups that we look at in this division includes persons with disabilities, older persons, people affected by female genital mutilation, people affected by child marriage, drug uses, and also on the crime side, a little bit about the dynamics of organized crime. And I would imagine in in that entire mix that 50% of a minimum would be women that are affected by these incidents. Absolutely. The majority affected are women. Of course, I'm talking about child marriage, who who are married children. And uh, I consider actually child marriage the worst form of gender-based violence. When I look at FGM, it's women going through this. But even the topic that has brought me to the Pan-Africa Parliament where I am today, online child sexual exploitation, really more than 80% of children being violated at such a young age are girls. But also looking at um, drug abuse. Understandably, the majority are men. But the dynamics in terms of response response looking at female-specific issues completely lacking. You go across the continent, you'll hardly find dedicated female rehabilitation centers. And when females go into rehabilitation centers for drug use, often they're still abused within those rehabilitation centers. So really the challenges that women go through is enormous. And uh, you, you, you are a bit kind to talk of 50%. I would be thinking that what we need to address is more than 80% of problems that uh, affect women. And given that you're in the African Union and you're responsible for the development of, of policies, 
Attending events like this, how do you take into consideration the, the different problems, well, let's say the same problem, but the different perspectives from various countries on the continent to account for them in your policies? Yes, we, we, we do. We do contextualize the policies quite a bit, but there are minimum standards that are not up for negotiation regardless of the culture, regardless of the country, certain practices are simply not acceptable. When girls are not going to school because they have to be married, that will not be tolerated, regardless of the culture, the religion, the context. But again, um, sometimes we have uh, to weigh um, the level of development of a country such that um, we do um, take into account in the policy implementation, stepwise implementation, and working hand by hand in the countries where they are to understand the culture and work from their, work inside out from their perspective rather than imposing and saying, hey, hey, this is wrong and you must stop it now, but working with them to understand why really we have to stop some of those practices. One of the things that I found in experience is that we can formulate policies, but the challenge often lies with implementation. How do we improve implementation of, of these, well, to try to negate these very, very important issues that have such devastating consequences on the lives of women and children? Indeed, implementation is a challenge. I mean, even looking at globally, Africa, we tend to... Um, to domesticate, not domesticate, but to really adopt and sign into a number of uh, international conventions. But they're not ratified nationally, and even when they are ratified, they are not implemented. For example, I mentioned that uh, we are addressing the challenges of online child sexual exploitation today. And we do have a, a continental framework, not, not even a global, a continental framework on cybersecurity, convention on cybersecurity, adopted in 2014. As we're talking today, only 11 countries have ratified this convention. And we're six years down the line? We're six, we're six years down the line. And this really what forced us to go the extra mile. Today we are discussing with parliamentarians across Africa responsible for different subcommittees like human rights, uh, justice, and social development to go that extra mile and really work with their parliaments to make sure that uh, this, uh, this, this convention is ratified, is domesticated, and appropriate resources are given for the implementation. The problem that we often face and see is that even where we ratify, things as a line, particularly if uh, they are what we call soft issues, issues affecting women, issues affecting children, we tend to go with this policy called mainstreaming. In my view, mainstreaming does not work. You mainstream a children's issue, a women's issue, into, a bigger, in, into bigger ministries. It's just another way of saying, forget it. We are not doing it. And so one of the greatest push 
as Africans working for the African Commission, whereas mainstreaming might be important, but we are also talking about intersectionality and coordinated efforts, integrated efforts where governments and ministries deliver us one, rather than taking an issue in one ministry and expecting the ministry to mainstream it across the ministries. That's an important dynamic because if you mainstream an issue, it becomes a non-issue. Staying with, with women globally around the world, women undertake most of the unpaid labor, which is essential to sustain households as well as economies from cooking, cleaning to, to child rearing and, and even subsistence farming. And according to the UN women, women carry out two and a half times more unpaid labor or work longer hours so that they can incorporate paid as well as unpaid labor. How do you think we can promote a more equi equitable distribution of unpaid work between men and women? That's um, a tough one. And indeed, uh, women bear the greatest burden. But you know what? As much as we need to focus on men, but my personal view is building the agency of the woman to take up that space to fight for themselves. I'm telling you, men will not let go unless the woman has an agency within herself to take decisions, to be able to do things and say no to certain aspects. Or, uh, for example, I will not understand if we've taken our girls to school, they're educated, they've undertaken training, they're working. I would not imagine that a man and a woman living the same house have gone to work to do the same type of work, we come back at home and one goes to sleep, one works. So for me, the most effective equalizer is empowerment of women, education and the correct education, education, training, skills, development. I mean, lots of our men work in the informal economy where they're seriously underpaid or not paid at all. So that even if they had to make the decision to work in the informal economy, but that they're 100% responsible for this, they're working in the informal economy, but getting, um, get, um, getting the requisite uh, income from the work that they're doing. So really for me, yes, we need to talk with men we need to talk with our children, especially male children, as we bring them up. But I do believe that the important aspect is giving the woman empowerment and uh, improving their agency. And one of those dynamics or, or components to help with skills development is, is through education. It's a vital tool for empowering both individuals as, as well as societies. You have your doctorate in business administration and you have forged a, a number of, of different programs in your life to, to focus on, on social development. For a moment, reflecting on yourself, can you share how education has impacted on, on your life and development? Really, without education, I would be nowhere. I'm a village girl, born and bred in the village. But back in the 70s when we went to primary school, formal education was 
kind of the same everywhere. So regardless of which part of the village you are in, if you, you worked hard, you'd be able to join good secondary school. So I left my rural village to go to secondary school 40 kilometers away from my home, and I had to walk. I had to walk, carry my suitcase to a boarding school 40 kilometers away, but I could do this because my dad also believed in education. I can tell you that I was the first girl in the village to go to secondary school, and many people told my dad that you are wasting the eggs of this girl. She needs to get married. So I've been many firsts. I was the first to go to secondary school from the village, and I went with very, very good marks. While I was in this poor school in the village, where no girl had ever gone to secondary school because of so many dynamics in the village, there was no really aspiration, and we could not aspire to even select national schools. So whenever I attempted to select good schools, my teachers told me that girls will go nowhere. So even the, the school that I went to, which is 40 kilometers away, was really a bad district school. I got in there and I told myself, this is not the place for me, because my ambition has always been to be a pilot. I said, Jane, look here, this school, you are going nowhere. For almost two terms, we were never taught maths, physics, or chemistry. So what did I do? And I always looked up to my dad and my mom. Uh, my dad, a villager, but someone who I think lived before his time. So one day, what did I do? I had an inkling of some good schools. Um, that are probably like 60 kilometers away. And I'd just like them because I'd seen them during um, district sports, the, the, the uniform that the girls wore were just so beautiful. I went to the directory and applied. This is, I mean, form two in this school that I did not like. And the school that I, that I needed to go to is actually called Ogande Girls. I can't even mention it by name. So I just wrote to the headmistress with my poor broken English from the village, and I can even say what, what I wrote. I said, dear madam, this is a girl called Jane. Jane. I like your uniform. I like your uniform, and I want to be in your school. But you know what? The teachers cheated me not to write a good school. So I was called to this bad school, and I want your school. Please accept me. I was shocked that in less than one month, the headmistress had replied and said, thank you so much for writing to us. We'll make considerations by the end of third term. Third term, our last week in school, we are closing school, we are going home. I've not received any reply from this school. And knowing that once I've gone home, I'll have no contact. I wrote again. I said, dear mother, this is that girl who wrote to you. You said you'll get back, you did not get back. We are closing school in one week. Now, what will I do? I cannot continue in this school. I must come to your school. Please, Madam, help. I went home confident that I will be called, and I took everything. I carried everything of mine to go home. The last week of the school holidays, I got a calling letter to go to Gandhi Girls, and I went to Gandhi Girls. It was tough. Firstly, I was so poor. 
Secondly, considering that the school I was in, physics, chemistry, and maths was hardly taught. I was completely behind. The headmistress called me to office the day that I went, said, you're a special case, and we don't do these things. The only condition you'll stay in this school of mine is for you to become number one to ten. And this was a school of three streams with about 95 girls. I started at the bottom. I was put in stream C. And she told me, if you don't make it to stream A, you are out of my school. It was hard, hard to start taking notes, copying everything that the girls had done the previous year in Form 1. I was not sleeping at all. I used to work the whole night. I could put my feet in the water in buckets so that I don't fall asleep. Unfortunately, at the end of Term 1, I was still in C. At the end of Term 2, I was still in C. But whenever I went home, my dad told me, see, the report is written, improved. So don't worry, the administrators will not chase you. Second time, I worked so, so hard. By third time, I went to stream B. By from three first term, I was in stream A. And I finished in stream A in form four and got very good grades to go to high school. So that's why I'm saying for me that Education is the only equalizer. You have to believe in it, and we have to encourage girls to really, really work hard. And if you have a dream as a young girl, as a young person, please go for it. No one should stop you because you're poor, because you're ugly, because you come, you come from rural community. It doesn't matter. Thank you for sharing such a wonderful story. This little person striving and, and struggling to, to make it in this big world, but the headmistress responding to you in, in such a way as to encourage you and, and motivate you to, to aspire and drive you on ahead. In fact, that woman is my hero to date. When I went to that school in Form 2, as I mentioned, we were really very poor. I didn't even have the appropriate uniform. My previous school where I was in Form 1, we wore black school shoes. This new school wore brown shoes. I didn't have, I couldn't afford. I wore black for two terms until a good Samaritan bought for me brown shoes. And look where you are today, living proof of the value of education. Recently, there's been a wave of, of different movements, uh, and very notable in, in South Africa with Me Too, Time's Up, Am I Next? Uh, and they've all been movements about gender-based violence, which is unfortunately not a problem unique to, to one country, but it's, it's a pandemic that affects all of us uh, as a society. One of the negatives of this campaign seems to be impacting, though, on the opportunities for women as a result of men not wanting to be implicated in any wrongdoing from working with women, which obviously jeopardizes hiring opportunities, working relationships. What are your thoughts about this? Um, my, my thoughts are that... Um, there could be valid reasons for fear for men pulling back. 
and this is why we need to work jointly to empower men as much as we empower women. But at the same time, I think um, as women, as, as leaders, we need to push for clarity of, of roles, very clear policies so that those spaces are protected. And when this clarity is black and white, what's affirmative action, this black and white, what is sexual violence at the workplace, what does it mean? Um, what does it mean if it happens? What are the remedies? I think those are really very important procedures to, to take on board. And if we do that, we're protecting the women, but we're also protecting the well-meaning men who are our allies. Very valid points. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And today we're talking to Dr. Jane Marie Ongolo at the Pan-African Parliament, and she is from the African Union Commission. Dr. Ongolo, our program, Womanity, Woman in Unity, is all about gender equality, which is increasingly a global focus taking into consideration the various challenges as well as the successes that women's legal rights have had over the last few years, do you think that in reality we will get to a point of 50-50 representation? I am confident we will do that. For example, the African Union Commission where I work really works towards that. And um, the AU Commission has so, so many departments. One of the departments, actually the department I work for, the Department of Social Affairs, has achieved that parity in senior management. And um, so some of the mechanisms, and without really wanting to say that uh, women are less intelligent, less skilled, but what the commission has really tried to do are affirmative action for example, where, you know, priority is given. If, if we have a man and a woman who are equally good, priority will be given to a woman. And that has really helped to achieve that priority. And where we have small gains, like in the department that I work for, I think these are good stories that we need to tell everyone and to encourage everyone using this Unfortunately, we are overrepresented in social development and social affairs, much less in the technical fields, and we need to put a lot of emphasis in the technical fields as well, because women are as good as men even with the technical issues. You've cited affirmative action as being one area and, and, and way of trying to address the dynamic. What are your views, though, on, on things like legislation or, or quotas as trying to shift that gender balance? I do believe in legislation and quotas also as one of the mechanisms for uh, really implementing affirmative action. So I believe in initial legislation to support quotas to achieve parity. Once parity has been achieved, probably then, you know, we, we can do away with it because we don't want to sit up there also and people making us feel that you are here just because of 
of the quota, while indeed women are there for really who they are. So it's important that we use these mechanisms to achieve parity. And then once the, the field has been leveled, you know, we've been asking for these quotas because the field is not leveled. The playing field is not level, for God's sake. You know, let's just look at typical family where you have a boy and a girl. The boy will be studying. The girl will be working, even assisting the parent with, with, uh, if the parent is working in the formal, informal sector. The girl will be assisting in the shop, in the wherever. We, boys will be doing homework. Girls will be cooking. But also the sexual abuse that impacts girls much more than boys. We have issues of um, even teenage pregnancy, where when a teenage girl is pregnant, will be sent away from school. The boy responsible will continue with school, assuming they're all teenagers, will continue with school. So by the time, you know, the girl picks up and gets there, things have moved. So we're asking for these measures just because the the field is not level. Otherwise, if it was, we would not need those measures at all. And you've reminded me of, of two, two things. One, we had an interview with the Foreign Affairs Minister of Jamaica, and she was talking about the issue of teen pregnancies, and she said it's always been a moral point, and it's always the girl's fault. And she said what they tried to do in Jamaica and managed to succeed was changing it to one of an economic argument, of saying if you send these girls away from school, they're going to become a burden on the state. They've produced a child who's going to be a burden on the state. The chances of them falling pregnant again is a much, much higher incidence. So bring these girls back into school, allow them to have that second chance and to go and be effective in society. And then the other thing was I was looking at the World Economic Forum on gender gaps. In 2017, the two clear gaps that we have is between business and politics. And they estimate, estimated then that it would take 217 years to close the gap from a business and economic point of view. 99 years to close the gap from a political point of view. When I looked at the 2020 figures, the 217 years has increased to 247. The 99 years for politics has decreased to 95. You and I won't be around by the time gender parity is reached. <laughs> it's, 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 the figures are actually shocking. And uh, for me, this should be a wake-up call that we have to be running at 100, we have to be sprinting at 100 meters and really not doing long distance um, races. It's an emergency. And I agree with the point that, that you say, we, we, we have to position this from different aspects. The fact that women are lagging behind contributes to poverty and the poverty cycle continues. When we say that when you educate a woman, you educate an entire family and a nation, you know, but if you educate a boy, it's one person. So some of these arguments should really help us to push the agenda, and the debate has to be central at the family level, has to start with the family, so that empowerment begins from the time 
children are born. We can't wait to start um, achieving and changing things as people grow. So if as we give birth, we give birth to boys, we give birth to children, equal, equal opportunities being given from that point on. So as the young people grow up, then they grow up knowing that they are equal. I mean, I know there's no single bullet that can fix this, but um, really starting at the family level is, is very, very important for me. And you're right about family and you're right about so many components. And I think back to looking at traditional cultures in, in the continent, that we have got a pervasiveness of, of patriarchy. We have got strong traditions which often hold women back. You've just expanded on, on that wonderful story of you coming from a village, managing to succeed as, as a young girl to where you are today. Can you share with us in your life what barriers and challenges from a gender perspective that you've managed to overcome? Um, quite, quite a lot of, of a, uh, quite a lot starting from the time I was in primary school. I think um, I knew my rights from the time I was really very young and uh, I'm a very gentleman now, but when I was a child, I was kind of wild, I was a fighter. And that's what helped me. I've fought all my life. And I can imagine that boys really used to harass us in school. And in my wildness, I could fight them like crazy. And each time we fought and I beat the boys, and I could beat them thoroughly. I'm the one who was always being caned. And it saddened me. It's something that I still remember. I'm bitter about it. I was always being caned in the parade in front of everyone for fighting. But I was protecting my space. I was protecting my space. And several attempts were made even at that early age to sexually assault. But being a fighter, you know, naturally a fighter, I had to address this, I had to deal with this. So for me, much more, um, I've experienced it much more growing up in school and uh, in the community, as I said, where girls did not go to school. So the community thought that I was abnormal and they didn't accept me. They, 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 didn't accept, they thought that I was abnormal, that eggs are, you know, my eggs are dying in, <laughs> in my womb <laughs> and those, those type of things. And they used to tell my dad that you have a boy, you don't have a girl. So for a long time, actually, I believed I was abnormal. And that helped me because I believed I was abnormal, that I didn't have girly feelings and whatnot. So I grew up feeling like that and behaving like a boy, unfortunately. So behaving like a boy protected me from a lot of the abuses that girls often experience. And my growth was also, I wouldn't say stunted, but I think I was developing very slowly because at 16, my boobs were barely coming out at 16. So most of the times I was flat and looked like a boy, like a man, so to speak. And even to date, many people tell me that I look more like a man than a woman. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that, but at the workplace, probably not. Uh, yeah, maybe my world side has protected me from any forms of discrimination at the workplace, but I experienced it more in the village, in the community, and growing up. So you really worked on establishing your identity of 
owning your space. Given your experiences and, and the world that we live in today, what would be your advice to younger women experiencing similar challenges to, to what you had? Um, don't give up. Develop a dream and keep on dreaming and go for it. And interestingly, the boys, or I, I don't want to demonize the boys, all of them, but the perpetrators, people will bring you down. They're not as strong as you think. The moment you fight back and tell them no, you'd be surprised at how fast they leave you alone. And you'll be called all sorts of names. Don't mind them as long as you know what you want. Go for it, young girls. Wonderful words of advice. Now, we're coming towards the end of the show, and one question that I ask all my guests who've made tremendous achievements in their respective disciplines is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some people speak about hard work, determination, perseverance, particular people in their life. Can you tell us some of your factors of success? Well, all those you've said, uh, perseverance, hard work, but significantly, if you have people who believe in you. My dad believed in me 100%, and that kept me going. My mom believed in me 100%, and it kept me going. But when I reflect back, unfortunately, because being a go-getter was seen to be a boy thing or a man thing, so because I was a go-getter, my dad always called me my boy. <laughs> so, well, I don't think it's a good thing, but somehow that propelled me. And I've always had wonderful, wonderful women role models, really. I believe in women role models. The school that I went to that I've just explained about, my headmistress, she's called Mrs. Odongo. I adore her to pieces. And I think all girls who've passed through her hands, they've just loved her. She mentored us, protected us, treated each of us girls in a school like you are an individual. That meant so, 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 so much. And some of the things that... Um, we experienced then the children of nowadays don't experience. We had one-on-one -on -one with our teachers all the time, and we were given all forms of, um, how do I call them, skills? Um, soft skills, soft skills to be able to manage our circumstances. So that, that, that's the second person. My dad, the first, my dad, mom's first, second person, my headmistress. Um, thirdly, several group of women that I've seen and I aspired to, uh, a lady called Mary Mbeo, looking at them, the things they were doing, I just loved, and I always wanted to be them. What has worked for me is when I identify the people that I like, then I work towards being them. The last one is my husband. I got married fairly early at 25 but if someone who believes in me 100% does not hold me back, really for him, as long as I'm happy, it doesn't matter whether I go to live in the South Pole or the North Pole. He lives in Kenya, I live in Addis Ababa, but we meet frequently and regularly. But that space for me just to be 
is the most important. And as we get into relationships or different associations, it's important to try to find someone who understands you no matter how complicated you are, who understands you, who believes your dream, and that has helped me. Thank you for sharing such a deep insight into the dynamics and, and the factors that have helped you get to, to be the person you are today. And lastly, as we close out the conversation, can you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration for girls and women living on the continent today? It's difficult. Firstly, that, uh, and it's a quote from the Bible, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let no one tell you otherwise. So being fearfully and wonderfully made, be who you are. Exploit your full potential. One never arrives until we die. Every day look for a new challenge and go for it. Wonderful words of inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so, so much. Uh, I enjoyed uh, being in your show and uh, I hope that uh, whatever little that we've shared might lift one girl, if not many. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the air today. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Jane Marie Ongolo, who is with the African Union Commission, where she serves as head of division for social welfare, vulnerable groups, drug control and crime prevention.